so to simplify what my job is, it's to make sense of what was just read in the scriptures. And <clears throat> there's some uh, wonderful um, one-liners in this um, chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And I'm going to try to bring your attention to some of the things I think that are just really important. Uh, let, me, let me begin with prayer. Father, we praise you and thank you that you have given to us this wonderful book, the Word of God. And we admit that we do a lot better with it when we come hungry. Sometimes it takes us a little bit to be stirred up or maybe we're distracted or we're bothered. And quite often along the way, we're sort of awakened as a sermon is... Um, preached or as the music works in us, um, a calming disposition so that we're ready to listen. So I just pray, God, I just pray that you would alleviate any distractions that would keep us from hearing. I pray that we would just have our hearts open and attentive. And I also ask that you would speak in such a way that every person here feels like they've benefited and they've understood your message in Jesus name. Amen. <clears throat> so when I look through this whole chapter, the one thing that really ties this together um, is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't seem quite as obvious when I first looked at it. And as I kept reading and studying, I kept thinking, like, Lord, what do you want me to talk about? And how do I tie these pieces together? And it just kind of came clear that one of the leading characteristics of the new covenant um, the New Testament is the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. So you'll, you'll hear me talk about that a lot. So to begin with, um, Paul is sort of defending his apostolic ministry. And believe it or not, that's still happening today. There's a lot of people that don't like Paul and they'll say, I like Jesus. Um, and they will actually, in the pulpit, there are people who will pit Paul against Jesus. And they'll say, well... Paul was male chauvinist or homophobic or, or Paul thought he was a self-appointed apostle. And so they do this very um, harmful thing and they disconnect parts of the Bible. So I just want to, if you're like new here, kind of, I just want to make sure you understand. We believe from Genesis to Revelation, all of it's the inspired Word of God. And we don't think that... Um, any one section should be ignored or we're going to default. We think there's one, one story, one author. God has spoken through many people at different various times and He's given us this book. And this book is, I can preach confidently with authority from any book of the Bible. And it's just very important to just lay that down um, because... Sometimes you might hear someone and kind of questions that. So the first thing Paul is, is well, how do you, what are some of the ways you can tell if a church is following the Bible? Um, how do you know if they're really walking with God? And so apparently there were some people declaring that Paul wasn't a legitimate apostle and that they didn't need to listen to his teaching. So he begins by saying, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? 
Do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Um, any of y'all job hunting? Or job hunting also means you're going to put, often it says um, recommendations or you might even, they might even ask for letters, a letter of recommendation or can I put you down as a reference and they're like wanting to find out if you're just building yourself up or there's some proof that you're what you claim to be. So they're asked for some kind of uh, um, way to measure. And Paul said, well, the best way to measure me and my ministry is you. The best way to minister, measure a ministry is by the fruit of that ministry. The best way to declare if someone is what they say is look at the fruit of their lives. But it's in the ministry, it's like Paul says, well, you're my, you're my letter. Uh, you're the best letter I've got. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation. Written on our hearts to be known and read by all. Like our love for you is, you, you know our love for you. And then also you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us. Written not with ink but the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human hearts. So... The Spirit writes on human hearts. That's the best validation of a real, of a real ministry that's God-honoring is that you see God changing people's hearts. I call it conversions and um, change, radical change. And so if you're going to a church and you never see conversions and nobody's changing, you should wonder, is this a New Testament church? Is this what the Bible proclaims ought to be going on? If you're part of a ministry and nothing ever happens and people just eat pizza and popcorn and watch movies and um, sing some songs together and do fun things together, that's fine. But that's not a church, that's a club. And the difference between a church and a club is a church has people that have been called of God to communicate the Word of God and as a result, and by the ministry of a Holy Spirit, Lives are changing and people are hearing God's Word and coming to faith in Jesus. So he says, um, the Spirit of God can write on human hearts. And so I, I guess one of the things I would say, oh, well, how about you? Is the, the ministry of God's Spirit working in your life? Are you feeling the presence of God actively engaging in your life? And is He writing things on your heart? Are you, like you come to church and... Do you know, if you're really awake to the Word of God, you can, you can pick up some stuff even in a bad sermon. And I know because some of you tell me that you can. <laughs> you really can. You're like, even in a bad sermon, I can pick up some stuff. If the Spirit of God, the Word of God is preached and you're awake, like you're listening, you're going to pick up something. It's the Spirit of God in your heart. And that's one of the best validations of a work of God taking place is people are being changed by God's Word. Another thing, a second thing I see, I kind of look at verse 5. Um, <clears throat> like, maybe the question is, who makes a minister? We are not sufficient of ourselves. Our sufficiency is from God, so who makes a minister? God makes a minister. God is the one that calls. It's not because someone's smart. 
It's not their education. It's not where they went to seminary. It's not if they have, um, they're really smart, so they should be the Bible study leader. Or it's really God. God is the one that can take someone who's not gifted, not equipped, not really going to do it. Because if someone's super gifted, guess what they're going to depend on? Their gift. Do you know what's dangerous to follow a gifted person? If they don't have gift and grace? Do you know gifted people is what destroys the church of Christ? Gifted people gather a large following. And if they don't have the grace of God, they're destroying people's lives. And eventually God will expose it. Because he says the, the fruit, what, what's the best um, way to evaluate a, men, a gospel ministry? It's the fruit that comes in the church and the lives of the people. The best manifestation is the fruit. And then he says, well, if you're just gifted, then it's going to be more about you. And it's going to be about your, your organization, your church. It's going to be something's going to be missing. It's going to be the spirit and presence of God. And people's lives aren't radically changing. They're just promoting the, the goods. They're just advertising the brand. Come to our church. We've got this cool brand. Look at our bumper stickers and our t-shirts. And there's nothing wrong with those. But if that's what it's about, then you just have gifted people doing ministry. But you don't have a, what I would call a, a new covenant or a new testament church. So you have... Um, the, the Word of God, the Spirit of God is riding on people's hearts. God's working in hearts and souls are being impacted. And then you have um, ministers that are equipped by Christ Himself. Like, you remember the time the apostles said, well, silver and gold we don't have, but what we have we give you. It's like, they didn't have a whole lot. They didn't offer but what we have, we give you. And we give you the Word of God and the promises of God and love and fellowship and friendship and we'll listen. Um, those ought to be the kind of things that are evident. And <clears throat> then he said, um, here's a good one. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The letter kills. That's pretty strong. <laughs> Um, what is he talking about? The letter kills. What is the letter? Okay, first of all, how do you know a biblical ministry? Because the Spirit of God is working to change people's hearts. Um, ministers that are not necessarily, it does, it's not their gift level, it's their grace level. Now they need gift too, of course, but it's the grace part, it's the grace area where you're really going to see the separation. And then, the Spirit gives life. The letter kills. The Spirit gives life. So let me tell you how this could work. Um, you go into a church and they're all about the letter. The letter is like the law. Or we could call the letter legalism. The letter, what they're referring to is the Old Testament. The Old Testament kills. Ooh. That sounds rough, doesn't it? The Old Testament um beats you down. What is, he talk, what is he talking about? So he's talking about the law, the written code. Um, remember Moses went up on the mountain and he had these two stone tablets. 
and God wrote with his own hand the law on God engraved the Ten Commandments on the two tablets of stone. It, I know it sounds miraculous because it was. And God wrote on these two tablets of stone and that's what we would call the law or the letter of the law. Now there's another way, in some ways the whole Old Testament is referred to as the law or the law of Moses or the law of God. So you have the Paul and the New Testament authors and Jesus, they got all this from Jesus. Jesus taught them this stuff. And you had the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Old Promise, the Old Standard, the Old Contract. In the Old Contract, you had the law. And here's what the law said to you. Um, here's ten rules you need to keep. And then the... And then the law also exposed you that you didn't keep any of them. It's like, if you want to have a relationship with God, you need to keep these ten rules. And the same law made it very clear that you didn't keep any of them. That's why it says the letter kills. The law kills. The law has no power to raise you up. The law just simply declares. Here's the standard and you failed. That's what the law does. That's really what the Old Testament does. Have any of you been to a church like that? You go in and all you feel is the law. You feel like, you guilty, worthless pig. Or whatever. Um, you've done this wrong. You've done this wrong. You've done this wrong. You've done... There are people that are afraid to go to church because they're afraid that all they're going to get is the law. And, they're gonna, and the law's going to do its work. Some people can preach the law and they're very good at it. And they make you feel miserable. And, but the law doesn't have the power to raise you up. The law just simply declares. And the law says, here's what God expects, and you haven't met that standard. And then, therefore, the penalty's death. And you're like going, That's, I don't like the law. Um, but can I tell you, the law had an important purpose. And that's why we have to, it's so dangerous to miss understand the purpose of the law. It was never the purpose of the law to save you. Total misunderstanding. The Old Covenant was never designed to save you. The Old Covenant was designed to let you know that you needed saving. The Old Covenant says, you're guilty. You need to get saved. And the whole Old Covenant, the whole first contract pointed toward the future to Jesus. The Old Covenant never said, come under my law and I'm going to lift you up. The Old Covenant said, come under my law and I'm going to crush you. And you felt guilt and weight. So when you hear the law, you walk out. If all you get the law, you feel terrible and you feel all these duties you've not done. and It's, it's crushing. And religion that's crushing is not the religion of the Bible. And actually, it was never the intent of the law the purpose of the law. That's why we have to be very careful when we're in the Old Testament. Make sure we understand. It's so funny. I hear people say, well, the way of salvation in the Old Testament, there's no two ways of salvation. There's no way in the Old and in the New. There's one way of salvation. The only way of salvation ever given, the only message in the Bible ever given about how you can be saved, is not by the law. It's by grace. 
It's through Jesus Christ. And it just so happens that we live on this side of the cross and we can see Christ. They lived on this side. They lived under the weight of the law. But the point of the law was to point them to Christ and said, you need to look toward the future because God has made a promise. He made a promise right there in the Garden of Eden. And that was the promise of the new covenant. But they weren't in it yet. They were, in, they were still in the old arrangement, the old contract. And under the old contract, you had to keep the law and you had to be good. But you couldn't. And so it crushed you. But the hope of the gospel was right there in Genesis and said, there will come someone born of a woman who will crush the serpent and he will keep the law and therefore the law will be lifted. He can lift the guilt from you. And so the Old Testament was always pointing toward the new. Always pointing toward the coming of Jesus. And therefore, instead of being crushed by it, if all you had the law was crush you, but if you could be is you could hear the law and embrace the promise. That was the gospel running through the Old Testament. The law would declare your guilt and the promise was, but God is going to send someone to save me from my sins. God's going to provide the Lamb, the Lamb of God. All the pictures and types in the Old Testament were pointing to Jesus. The fulfillment of the law was always in Jesus. And so... That's when he says, that's why it says the letter kills. If you want a good dose of law, it'll kill you. But what it'll do is it'll point you to Jesus. And that's purpose. So the Spirit, spirit gives life. I find it so interesting. Because at first you would think, well, Jesus gives life, right? Who saved me? Jesus is my Savior. Yes, Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the one. Jesus is Lord. Jesus, who saved you? Jesus saved me. So there's a certain sense in which you could say of any of the three persons of the Trinity, the Father saved me. He saved me because He sent His Son. The Son saved me. The, he saved me because he, he died for my sins on the cross and He saved me and, and died for me. And you could say, well, the Spirit saved me because the Spirit opened my eyes to see the reality of what Christ had done and the Father sent Him. So the salvation is always a Trinitarian work. Always. It's always a cooperation between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But when this is saying the Spirit gives you life, there's a unique role that the Spirit has. The, the role of the Father that we're so thankful for is that He created the world and He sent the Son. He's our Creator and He sent the Son. Thank you. Does anyone want to say thank you, Father, that you sent the Son? Are you glad the Father did what He did? Are you appreciative to the Father? Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. And then the Father sent the Son. So what was the Son's peculiar work? The Son did the will of the Father and He lived under the law. He submitted Himself to the law in order to save us who've been crushed by the law. Jesus was under the law and He didn't crush it. It didn't crush Him rather. The law didn't crush. Jesus carried the weight of the law for 33 years and lived under the weight of the law and He kept the law for us. It didn't beat Him down. He was victorious. He lived up to the righteous standard. Therefore, He could give His life on the cross to die for our sins. That's what Jesus did. He fulfilled every requirement of the law so that He could keep the law that we couldn't. 
That's why the Bible says he is my righteousness. I have no righteousness to offer God. My righteousness was exposed by the law. The law says guilty, guilty, guilty. Guess how good I did on the test. There's ten questions on it. Guess how good I did. Zero. I didn't fail. I didn't make a 65 or a 70 or whatever passing is these days. When I was a kid it was 70. Now the scale's all over the place. But when I was a kid, if you made a 69, you failed. A D was failing. And you had to take whatever again. What, in the law of God, passing is 100 and nothing less. Jesus is the only one that made 100. The rest of them made a big zero goose egg. My moral credibility before God is zero, not a nothing, trash. All your righteousness is as filthy rags. He's like, bring me your righteousness. And blunk, there's my filthy rags. That's what I have. I'm like, oh, that stinks horribly. But God says, my son smells wonderfully. He kept it. He pleased me. And so now, the law didn't crush Jesus. Jesus kept the law, and he can go legally, lawfully. This is important. This is important. The gospel is legal. It's fully legal. The transaction is legal because Jesus abided by and kept the whole law. So he is completely legal. And it's legal and lawful for him to say to the Father, I will lay down my life and give my righteousness for them. I'll take their sin and I will give my righteousness to them. We'll make a transaction. I'll die on the cross. I'll die the death they deserve and I'll give myself. And so he talks about what Jesus did. So that's the second one. And what does the Spirit do? The Spirit applies and appropriates what Christ did for me. The Spirit takes what Jesus did at the cross and applies it to me. He comes into my life and says, I'm bringing Christ's righteousness with me into your heart. And so when we pray, in John 14, Jesus promised that He would send the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the counselor of God, and the Holy Spirit comes and He says, He will teach you all things. In John 16, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will come and one of the things He will do is convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. So the Spirit opens your eyes to truth, especially the truth of the gospel, and then He lets you feel the weight of the law. I am guilty. And He convicts you of sin. I am a sinner. And then He opens your eyes to see the beauty and majesty of Christ. And you fix your eyes. And it's the Holy Spirit for the first time in your life you see Jesus as your hope and salvation. It worked like this. Paul's the one writing. For Paul, it happened on the road to Damascus. And he says, I was blind. He was blinded and he saw, he saw he had an encounter with God and God helped him to see that he was, he was a proud Pharisee until he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and says, I am a broken sinner. And he cried out to God by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God brought life. He's the life-giving Spirit. You can have knowledge of God, but until the Spirit of God brings conviction of sin... And you humble yourself before God and you call out to God. And this is all the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings life. He regenerates. You remember in Genesis 4, 7 maybe, something somewhere around there. And it talks about God breathed into man the breath of life and he became a living being. God breathed. God, the breath of God brought life and created life. He is the life 
life-giving spirit. So for our natural birth, even though we can say there are natural components, natural generation, we still believe that every child that's born is a miracle of God. God is the life-giver. We give Him credit and glory for every life. But it started back in the beginning when He breathed life into man and He became a living being. But here's what happens is God says, I do that twice for Christians. I breathe into them their first life, their natural generation, and then I breathe into them the second life, the regeneration, and that is the second birth or born of the Spirit. Everyone's born of the flesh, but not everyone is born of the Spirit. Born of the Spirit means I felt the weight of the law. I knew that I was spiritually dead. I asked God to save me from my sins and He came and brought new life into me. And that's the difference between preaching law and preaching grace. Preaching law beats you down and says you're worthless, you're nothing, you terrible person. You need to get your act together. You need to start living right. That's the law coming at you. The law is like, you need to stop telling your lies. And it's moralism that's taught. And it's called from many pulpits. Many pulpits preach law when they claim they're preaching the gospel, but they're not, they're just condemning people. And then what happens when you move from that preaching into gospel preaching, it says, yes, you're sinful. Of course, we're all sinful. The church in Corinth had Horrible problems. Embarrassing scandal in the church in Corinth. Read 1 Corinthians. It's embarrassing what they went through and some of the things. We went through that and it's like, wow. Some people are saying, really? That happened in the church? They say, yeah. And it goes on in our church. Ooh, we didn't know. Are you a living? Are you alive? We know that sinners go to Webster Baptist Church. But we also know and believe that the Spirit of God comes and He begins to work and takes people right where they are and He begins to show them that you've been trying in your flesh. No wonder you're not making progress in the Christian walk. You've been trying to live the Christian life in your own strength, in your mind, in your determination. What you need to do is you need to surrender to God and let the Spirit of God begin to work in you. Let Him begin to awaken within you new desires and new power and new strength. And so we see that the Spirit gives life. And then he describes the ministry of the new covenant. And he says it's glorious. And he says the old, old covenant had some glory. There were some glorious moments. Do you remember some of the glorious moments in the old covenant? One of those he talks about here is when Moses, and whenever Moses would meet with God, like 40 days, or even if he would go into the tabernacle once they had built the tent of God and he would go into the tabernacle he would come or into the tent and he would come out with such brilliance and he had been in the presence of God and it just there was a, a glow about him that was manifesting the glory of God there were times when God came in such glory that people were run out of the temple or run out of the tabernacle because the glory of God come so came so the glory of God was present in the Old Testament but by comparison the far greater glory belongs to the New Testament or the New Covenant. Because God promised that the day would come after He had accomplished the work of redemption. When redemption was accomplished, when Jesus had finished His work on the cross, Jesus said, and the Old Testament predicted, that a day would come when the, out, the Holy Spirit would not be poured out just in rare occasions, but as normative. 
And that's the period we live in. We live in the new covenant age and the spirit of God has promised that he will come with more power. He said, if people will seek me, I will come. I will come in declaration of the resurrection of Jesus because Jesus raised, it says that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, and that took a lot of power, right? That same power that raised Jesus from the dead will raise us from the dead one day and also will work in our lives and our hearts. And that's what he said. He said, wow, will not the ministry of the Spirit have ever more glory? Like Moses' face was shining. Won't, won't the Holy Spirit and Jesus shine in His new covenant church? If there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the Old Testament, the ministry of righteousness, the New Testament, must far exceed it in glory. And then he says they'll just begin to move from glory to glory. There'll be more and more glory. And more and more glory to me says a couple things. It means, number one, as I grow in my relationship to God, I will see more of the glory of God and, and be more aware of it and long for it more. I will grow and I will seek and love the glory of God. And I, I want to be part of it. Like if there is a revival going on right now in our world, in our country, my friends, I want to be part of it. I want to see the glory of God. I want to watch God at work. I want to be part of it. I want to, like, I want to go there. I want to be there. I want to... I want to see and feel in the presence of God. I don't want to just always read about everything in a book. I want to live some of this. That's exciting to me. And in the same way, I also look forward to the, the greater glory, and the greatest glory of all will be when Christ comes. And so we're moving from glory. There was glory in the Old Testament. There was far more glory when Jesus came in the resurrection. And the greatest glory of all is when Jesus comes and returns. It's going to be so much glory. Some people are going to be screaming for rocks to fall on their heads. That's what it says in the last book of the Bible. So glorious will be that it will be too much glory, especially for those people who've rejected God. And the glory of God's going to be terrifying to them, but it's going to be the most thrilling thing if we're alive and He's coming soon, and some people think that He is, then there's going to be glory that you can't... It's unimaginable glory. And then, I just want you to know that's the direction we're moving. And then, I want to talk about... He comes and He talks about a veil. There's a veil in Moses, in Moses' day. Verse 14 says, their minds were hardened like a veil, like they couldn't see very clearly. To this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Only through Christ is it taken away. That means people come and they read the Bible and they don't really see. It says to this day, people are reading their Bibles and they don't really have the veil lifted. They don't really know what it's all about. They're trying to be religious. They have this you know, kind of religious feelings, a little bit of stirring in their hearts, like, yeah, I want to. But they don't really feel what they ought to feel and experience what they ought to experience. And it's, it's a veil. What kind of veil? It's like blinders. You can't see exactly what's going on. And the Holy Spirit wants to lift the veil. He's a veil lifter. He wants to lift the veil, my friend, for you. I don't know what your experience is with God, and I don't know how you feel at this moment, but what, when we start feeling d distant from God, then some kind of veil or fog, something's in our way, and Satan is a blocker. 
He's a blocker. He likes to block our view of God. And I don't know, maybe something's going on in your life or recently there's been something going on and you just feel down and depressed or discouraged or lost or can't see Christ and you feel like, I'm not sure that I have any spiritual vitality. And it's because Satan, is he's the blocker. He's been doing all kinds of tricky things to block your view of God. He make people stay home for two years. He'll make people get discouraged. He'll do something in the church and cause trials in the church or division in the church. And he just, start, he just starts blocking things. And so we're asking God to lift the veil. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. I want to lift a veil in here. If you have a veil, I'm praying God will lift that veil right now. When one turns to the Lord... The veil is removed. That, there's the problem. The problem is, if there's a veil, it's because you're not turning to the Lord. It's because you're trying to figure out on your own. Maybe there's some sin you're wanting to hold on to, and you don't want God, you don't want God to have His way. You want to have your sin and God. And so you're trying to play this game with God. And you're like, you're like, mm, I want to hold on to this sin I've got going on in my life. And, and God's like, no, no, you've got to lift the veil. I'm not, I'm not coming out. I'm not going to let you see what I would have for you if you would lift the veil. And there's people who are struggling. That Oftentimes church-going people have areas in their life and they don't want to give them up to God. They don't want to surrender. And they think they're still having some... Uh, encounter with God and God's like saying you got a veil over your eyes and you need to lift this it's the most wonderful thing when it lifts I, I don't personally know I've never heard someone tell me that they trusted God to lift the veil and they regretted it I can't tell you how many people I've heard say I held on to my sin and I regretted it I don't remember, I don't ever remember someone saying the worst thing I ever did was come clean with God. And, but some reason we just hold and we hold on to it and we hold on to it because we're afraid that maybe God might not be good and He might not have the best plan for us or he don't, He's going to take away something that means a lot to us. Guess what He's going to do? He's going to take away what wasn't what, what any value anyway and replace it with something far more valuable. That's what He wants to do for you. Okay, so the Lord, verse 17, the Lord is spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is freedom. Um, I want to talk to you for just a minute about freedom. Freedom sounds very different than... Um, setting up all these horrible rules and regulations and you must comply whether you like it or not. That's, that's, free, that's not freedom, that's bondage. Here's freedom. Um, freedom is when the Spirit of God works real changes in me and I actually now want to do what's right. That's what he gets down to here toward the bottom and he says to being transformed or the Greek word looks a lot like the word metamorphosis. And God, the Spirit of God comes in you. He starts doing metamorphosis. He starts changing you like a caterpillar to a butterfly. 
and you caterpillars, I'm sorry to tell you this, but you, I think caterpillars are probably cute, but I think butterflies are much prettier. And some of you are content being caterpillars. And God wants to make you a beautiful butterfly. And you're just going to stay a caterpillar and climb up trees upside down and stuff. When you could fly and have people walk by and see beautiful butterflies. And that's what he wants to do. And he says that the, where the Spirit of the Lord is, you're free to fly like you were made to. There's a freedom that comes with the Spirit of God working in you. So, um, what should you do? You should lift the veil and seek the Lord. Lift the veil and your prayer as we finish, your prayer needs to be so simple. Lord, lift the fog, lift the veil in my life. And I'm ready to surrender to you. Because your path is way better than the one I'm trying to walk. I'm trying so hard to do this thing and I'm failing because I'm not. I'm afraid to let you have total control and I'm ready now. Lift the veil and surrender to God. Not my will, but yours be done. That is the path to freedom. And here's what happens. God begins to work in you and He comes to you and He begins to fill you with hope and He gives you new power and new strength and the Holy Spirit gives you power to do things that you cannot do right now currently. And you're trying to overcome sin and put away, I don't know, whatever, alcohol, porn, drugs, drinking, attitude, anger, resentment, all those things that are not good for you. You're trying to put them away on your own. And God says, let me help. I'm good at that. And the Holy Spirit comes into you. And he gives, if you're not a Christian, then I have great news. You need the Holy Spirit just in the begin with. You need Christ. And Christ is ready to start doing some amazing changes in your life. So if you're not a Christian, man, this is easy. Just ask Jesus to save you and teach you how to live. And that's what he does. He says, all who call upon the Lord will be saved. If you're not a Christian, it's real simple. Call upon the Lord. Say, God, save me. If you are a Christian and maybe you've been walking around in the fog a bit, then what you just say is, Lord, will you clear the fog up for me? Holy Spirit, come open my eyes and show me the things in my life that I've been trying to hide. And just show me how to go from here. And that's what the Lord wants to do. Okay, so that's all I got. Um, I think we're going to sing. Here's, as we sing, I would like for you to do this. I would you think about how sweet it would be to know what this verse is talking about, the freedom that God would have for His children. Um, the freedom doesn't mean you're going to go do your own thing. That's not what the freedom is. It means you're now free. You're free from the bondage of sin and you're free to live for God. It's not like, oh, I'm free, I can do what I want. It's like, no, I'm free now to live for God. Like, that is my new desire. He sets you free to be what you were made to be. And that is a child of God walking with God. Let me pray for us. Father, I just want to pray for everyone here, and I pray that every person here would um, lift the veil. Lift the veil, my friend. Oh God, lift the veil from our eyes. Help us to see clearly. Sometimes we try to hide things 
behind the curtain we don't want you to see, but you see it all and we're just kidding ourselves. And Father, I pray for someone here who they didn't know there was such a thing as a veil. They didn't know that what they really had to do was not get all their do some apologetics course to get all their questions answered or read all the answers to all the objections a person could raise but that what they most need is to call upon you I pray that would be true today in Jesus name Amen